The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored for your business needs. Specialising in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. To elevate your business, visit ajproducts.ie. It's Wednesday, February the 28th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Podcast from the Irish Times. I am Hugh Linehan. The much-discussed international year of elections gets its first Irish outing on June the 8th, when the country goes to the polls to select the country's local councils and also the members of the new European Parliament. With just over three months to go, the parties uh, have been selecting most but not all of their candidates for the last while, and for an election which has often shown up surprise results in the past. So we wanted to have an early look about how things are going, who the runners and riders are, and what the likely permutations are, as well as how well Ireland is represented in a parliament which has more power now than it used to have in the past. And to do that, I'm joined by political scientist Theresa Reedy and our own political correspondent Harry McGee. Hello to you both. Hi, you. Hello, Hugh. Harry, you were writing about this this week. Maybe you could give our listeners a, a reminder, first of all, of, of how this works, what the constituencies are, how many seats are in play. Yeah, well, in Ireland, we used to have four constituencies and they were kind of made sense geographically. There was Connacht, Ulster, Munster, Leinster, which was essentially the rest of Leinster and then Dublin. But then what happened was over a period of years, as the European Union expanded and included more countries, the uh, parliament began to become unwieldy and unmanageable. And the number of MEPs per country was subsequently cut. So I think the lowest number of MEPs we have had has been 11. Uh, We have had 15 in the past. But because of significant population increase in Ireland over the past decade, uh, because of Brexit as well, which happened in uh, after 2016, uh, we've actually seen a net increase in seats over the past number of years. So people will remember, for example, there was a rather weird situation last time out where Dublin had three seats, but possibly four seats, mm-hmm. and it ended up with four seats. Barry Andrews made it in on the on the tail of that change. Yeah, and then he had to sit on the subs bench uh, mm-hmm. until he was called in after, well, not quite midway through the first half, but essentially that had to be ratified by Europe, and, and they hadn't quite done that by the time the election had been held. And since then, that brought us to 13 seats. Since then, uh, we have um, acquired another seat because of our population increase. So now we have 14. So there are now three constituencies. Uh, There's Dublin, uh, which is easy to explain. Uh, There is South, which is essentially Munster, plus the four kind of eastern, southeastern and eastern uh, counties of Leinster. And then there is the behemoth of a constituency, Midlands Northwest, uh, which now includes 15 counties. Leash and Offaly have been included. So it's all of Connacht, the three Ulster counties, and uh, all but four, I think nine Leinster counties uh, in total. of uh, Maybe eight or nine, I can't remember how many counties there are in Leinster, but it's, it's most of Leinster. So it's a very big, sprawling uh, constituency. Funnily enough, by adding Leash and Offaly, I mean, people have said that constituency doesn't make any sense. People don't have any sense of belonging to it. But funnily, uh, the, the addition of Leash and Offaly 
it makes a little bit more sense in terms of its geographical space because they would be more associated with other Midlands counties like Longford, uh, Westmeath and Roscommon where the three counties meet to quote the uh, famous old uh, song. So there are the constituencies. We have uh, 14 seats. Uh, two of the uh, 13 outgoing MEPs will not be standing for re-election and that will mean that uh, we will see a number, perhaps quite a, a significant number, of new MEPs joining the European Parliament in Brussels. Yes, and Theresa, just to cast our minds back to the last election in 2019, that was a very bad day for Sinn Féin and a very good day for Fine Gael. Yeah, somewhat unexpectedly so, in fact. It turned out that uh, Fine Gael it actually gained a seat and it took five seats at the 2019 uh, European Parliament elections. Fianna Fáil did slightly better than expected as well, but a lot of that was um, then marked against the decline of Sinn Féin, uh, which lost two of its three uh, MEPs. So there will be some expectation of a reversal of that uh, going into these European Parliament uh, elections. So actually the 2019 European Parliament elections are probably the heyday or the peak of electoral performance for Fine Gael under Leo Varadkar so far. His uh, um, term as leader of the party hasn't translated into very strong electoral performances in any of the other outings that he's been involved with them. So just to look at that, would it be oversimplistic to say that Fine Gael are bound to lose seats and Sinn Féin are bound to gain seats? I mean, I don't think it's it's that straightforward, but I, I think we'll probably see a gain for, for Sinn Féin and, and a loss for Fine Gael. The question is how many gains for Sinn Féin and maybe how many losses for Fine Gael. But because we're going up a seat as well, so we're going from 13 seats to 14 seats, um, that might mask some of, the, some of the dynamics. So somebody could gain or somebody, uh, you know, a seat without it necessarily being at the expense of somebody, uh, of somebody else. So the distribution is going to help the incumbents in, in particular. I think what Venezuela is, is in a tricky situation because it's losing two uh, MEPs. They're retiring. Um, they're both women as well. So one of them is Frances Fitzgerald, who's a quite a high profile uh, MEP, even though she's only been in the European Parliament a short time. Um, and then Deirdre Clune in Ireland South, who's been an MEP for a much longer period of time, but has something of an um, electoral Lazarus-like reputation because in a couple of elections she's kind of come from behind to hold that seat um, in a fairly tight corner for, for Fine Gael. So she's done very well for Fine Gael over the last couple of elections um, so, and they're, you know, they're reasonably well known so th- they do have a challenge in that sense of the word. They, they have, strictly speaking, probably um, more seats than they should necessarily have held the last time around and, um, and the wind is not with them certainly going into this election. So would it be fair to say, just sticking with Fine Gael, first of all, as the, as the largest party in terms of the seats they hold currently, that it's it's in South and Midlands, North West, that their their seats are under threat. They they hold two seats in both of those constituencies at yes, the moment. Yes, definitely. And and they're, you know, replacing a well-known candidate in, in Ireland South, which, which really adds to that dynamic or adds to that challenge. Yeah, I want to come to, in a little while to what actually works in terms of candidate selection and uh, what history tells us about about that, Harry. But then there'll be a bit of coverage also of Fine Gael's, you know, a, a lively contest for the nomination in Dublin, which you cover in your in your piece this week as well. There were some suggestions that there was a favoured leadership candidate who didn't make it, but that's been that's been rejected uh, by by Leo Varadkar. Yeah, I think that once, OK, the leadership might might desire a particular candidate and might give them backing. But once it's left to the membership, I mean, once you go to a convention, it's 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 in the hands of the membership. That's democracy. That is democracy. So, you know, the, the best laid plans by the leadership will, will be undone. 
if you look at Fianna Fáil in Midlands Northwest, uh, a lot of people would have seen that Lisa Chambers might have been the preferred candidate, but then Barry Khan arrived on the scene. So when it became a battle using the uh, the ordinary membership, the ordinary membership voted in a particular way. Uh, it's very hard to know if the leadership actually favoured Josepha Madigan over uh, Regina Doherty. Both of them former ministers, so significant figures within the party. Yeah, I mean, uh, Pascal Donoghue seconded Josepha Madigan. You know, that doesn't mean that that meant that every single minister in the party was backing her candidature. I mean, the evidence uh, for a, an official leadership candidate, in my mind, was relatively slight uh, in that regard. And I, I, I think the, the leadership, to a certain extent, said let them at it. You know, whoever emerges from the convention will be the person who emerges from the convention. And then the leadership can come in afterwards and apply, you know, if it, if it has a preferred candidate, that person can be added to the ticket afterwards. In Dublin, Regina Doherty is, is, is uh, fairly uh, firmly located in the north of the city. So the party will need a, a candidate in the south of the city to gather a considerable Fine Gael vote in that part of it. It happened in, in 2019. Frances Fitzgerald was the frontrunner uh, and she was based in the south. And then Austin Curry, or sorry, uh, Mark Durkin um, uh, from the SDLP was the second candidate for the party and he ran... Uh, Mostly, he, he, even though he, he came in... He's, he's very north side. He's very, very north side. More north side than Austin Curry, actually, when, yeah. you come, when you come to think of it. But uh, they tried to, to split the constituency in two. And you'll find that with all of the parties, that they will try, because they're very big constituencies with very big populations. So it's very hard for one, especially with the bigger parties, uh, for one candidate to be able to reach every part of the And if that's, if that's true in Dublin, when you're talking about a distance of 10 or 20 kilometres, it's triply, quadruply true in somewhere like Midlands Northwest, Theresa, which is, I mean, it's an extraordinary distance. It's certainly in Irish political terms to be looking for votes for everywhere from South Leash to Idish Owen. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that we've seen happen with European Parliament elections is, is they've almost, um, you know, they've drifted towards a presidential style of campaigning. It's just not possible for candidates to, you know, in the traditional sense, go around and knock on all doors and meet all of the, the, the voters. There's definitely still a lo- an element of local canvassing, but a lot of the uh, European Parliament election is now, um, it, it's played out in the airwaves. So they will, at best, they will try and, and participate in local radio stations and in all of the constituencies and kind of visit key population centres. But we have seen the kind of style of campaigning change very significantly because of the um, the size of the constituencies. And, and the idea that your candidate is rooted in your local community, it just doesn't work when you have, uh, you know, two constituencies which are basically the top half of the country and the lower half of the uh, of the country. So that dynamic has has changed quite a bit, and it means that um, the 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 big debates that take place during the the campaigns can actually have a reasonably important impact in introducing the candidates to the to the wider electorate. And of course, we also know that the, the electorate is not uh, terribly interested in European Parliament elections uh, on an ongoing uh, basis. Turnout tends to be a good bit lower than it is at general elections. So the, the nature of the campaigning is, is, is different. And the type of candidate you select then also is a little bit different because for most of these parties, they they need to have somebody who already has a fairly serious network, preferably a high national profile and the kind of campaign resources to be able to operate a campaign spanning multiple counties. 
So yes, this is a what what is generally called a second order election. Harry, you have an interesting quote from Adrian Kavanagh, an academic in in Maynooth in in your piece, where he suggests that particularly in rural areas, that if it weren't for the fact that the local elections were also being held on the same day, you might only see a turnout of twenty percent for European elections. Yeah, he says that that in his estimation, rural areas, eighty percent of the people go to vote in the local elections, and only twenty percent vote in the European elections. They don't consider it to have the same. Uh, significance as a local election or even a a general election. So you see kind of idiosyncrasies uh, emerge uh, that that kind of diverge from what you you would see in national uh, patterns in domestic politics. For example, you'll see uh, smaller parties can do very well in European elections. Uh, You can see people elected who would never get elected in a uh, general election or coming close to election and you can also see the emergence of candidates who would be outside the kind of general mainstream sphere of Irish politics. Adrian gave an example of Peter Casey, who did extremely well. And Theresa was referring to the presidential nature of the elections. He did well in the presidential election. He did very well in the European elections the following year. Uh, but he tanked, to use Adrian's uh, very descriptive uh, phrase. And accurate. Uh, and accurate in the general election uh, that followed. So if you're using the uh, European election as a barometer of how things will happen in a general election, it's a, a curate's egg because sometimes it's good and sometimes it's abysmal. The last time around, it was about as effective as Michael Fisher's famous weather forecast that no hurricane was about to strike the southeast of England in 1987 and uh, a hurricane promptly devastated the country only 24 hours later. In, in 2019, Fine Gael did very well, uh, Fianna Fáil did relatively well, and Sinn Féin bombed. In the general election, only eight months later, Sinn Féin had an amazing election. Uh, Fianna Fáil did so-so, not very well, and Fine Gael did not very well either. So the trends of the European election were reversed only eight months uh, later. Personality is really important. I think until about six months ago, Sinn Féin would have been off the opinion that the Sinn Féin brand would have been strong enough to carry their candidates home in the European election. But what I think is significant is that Sinn Féin, I think it supports has plateaued a little bit. I think its internal polls, plus the Irish Times poll and other polls are showing uh, that Sinn Féin uh, has reached a peak and might be on a slight decline. So and it's in the mid to high 20s rather than the rather than the low to mid 30s. 30s that it had. And I think its choice of candidate for the European election, they haven't... Uh, finalise their candidate selection as yet but we know who's going to be running for Sinn Féin uh, at this stage and uh, I think that's very interesting and I think it illustrates that trend uh, to some extent. They have chosen three very high profile people uh, as standard bearers in each of the constituencies. Michelle Gildernew, the MLA from Fermanagh in, in Midlands North West. Uh, they've chosen in Boylan a former MEP who also has a high profile in uh, Dublin. And they've chosen a very high profile TD, Kathleen Funchen, very uh, well regarded, very experienced um, uh, as its candidate in, in South. So they're prepared to sacrifice a, a Doyle seat in order to ensure uh, that they get a seat in 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 that particular constituency. So I think six months ago, Sinn Féin would have been assured of it comfortably of getting one seat in each constituency. And they still are, in my opinion. 
but uh, they also would have thought that perhaps they had a good chance of getting s- second seat in at least one, if not two, of the three uh, constituencies. But I think just to try to maximise that chance, uh, they have you know realised that they do need to have very strong personalities out there as their leading candidates. It does raise the question again, over the last five years at least, Theresa, why they did so badly in 2019 and why that was such a misleading indicator for the for the general election that, that, that followed a few months later. And then I suppose what lessons, Harry seems to be suggesting is that they've taken lessons from that uh, and they know that the Sinn Féin brand is not strong enough this time. But the reality is that even with the dip in polls which Harry mentions there, they are still clearly clearly uh, the leaders in, 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 in being the, lar- the largest party in the country and, and with those kinds of numbers even if they're in the high 20s should be absolutely guaranteed of a seat in the three constituencies and fighting for other ones. I mean to, to answer your last part first the expectation is that Sinn Féin are going to do quite well at these uh, at these elections and the, the opinion polls even albeit with a slight softening of support that you've seen in recent polls uh, they should very careful they sh- sh- should be able to, to take the, the seats. Going back to what happened in 2019 we know there were some evaluations after the poor local and European Parliament um, election results and there was a kind of a period of reflection, I think is what all of the parties call this, um, in, in the months thereafter. And there was a lot of discussion about how the party had become too critical and too shouty in opposition. And there was a, a reframing of the party as one that would propose solutions. And the recovery probably had started by the time of the by-election in November of, of 2019. And then you have the, the really uh, strong performance performance of uh, Sinn Féin at the 2020 general election. So there is a kind of a, a narrative around what happened the last time uh, the last time around and how that was corrected. I think this time around the party is, I mean, it's it's just doing so much better in the polls. It's substantially ahead of where it was in 2019. So, you know, there is a, a, a clear reality to that. But I do think it's also worth mentioning that there there is a degree of complication um, for Sinn Féin in terms of competing at European Parliament uh, elections. And so the first thing is we've said already, people don't really vote in European Parliament elections on European issues. Uh, it's always national issues and they're floating around in the background. But it's also true that Sinn Féin has been fairly critical, actually, of the of the European Union over, you know, many, many decades. And 2019 was interesting because it was the kind of post-Brexit election and it was, it had really softened its tone on membership of the European Union uh, very, very significantly. So it was a more complicated me- message that it was sending. It, it's still in that complicated space. Um, you know, it supports EU membership, but it's very critical of the current EU arrangements and it's drawing a lot of its um, support from younger age cohorts who tend to be among the more pro-European supporters. So to the extent that European issues matter... You know, I think Sinn Féin has a slightly more a slightly more complex and complicated message that it needs to communicate. Uh, is that going to affect its seat numbers? I, I don't think so, but I think it means that they have to be very careful and very prepared going into debates as to exactly how they pitch themselves in relation to the European Union and what they would do. And I think that becomes ever more important now because we are really only months from a general election when some of these issues become even more significant. I mean, that's very interesting, Harriet. We're going to come in a little while to what, you know, what the outcomes of this election might mean for the European Parliament itself. But listening to Theresa there, it, it says to me that if I were a Sinn Féin candidate and I was on the airwaves as part of this campaign, I'd be 
banging on about housing and health, even though those are not necessarily the core issues that will be debated at the European Parliament. But those are the ones that are that are Sinn Féin's preferred ground and that they're likely to get the most support on. Absolutely. And Sinn Féin might be in a bit of uh, difficulty in relation to immigration, which is, as our monthly tracking polls have been showing, has become a huge issue uh, in Ireland. I was speaking to Marion Harkin and Malcolm Byrne, both of whom former MEP and a former candidate, uh, who, who both have kind of their, their finger on the pulses of their constituencies. And both of them separately uh, indicated to me that if a strong, rural, independent uh, candidate were to emerge with a, um, with a, 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 a message on migration and immigration and accommodation that kind of chimed with those that we've seen uh, in communities and places like Ross Gray and Ballinrobe and other places throughout the country uh, over the past uh, year, uh, that they would have a very good chance of getting elected in the South constituency and also in Midlands, Northwest. It's this kind of anomalous nature of European elections. There's always been a kind of tradition of kind of independent rural candidates going back to TJ Maher, a former president of the IFA many, many years ago. Uh, Paddy Lane, who actually stood for Fianna Fáil, uh, came from that tradition uh, as well. So there's always been a kind of a, a strong rural uh, independent uh, tradition. Uh, but that that if, if immigration is, uh, it's a big domestic theme at the moment, but if that plays out in the election, if it still remains high on the priority list for people, you know, Sinn Féin might be squeezed out in its hope for a second seat in maybe one, if not two uh, constituencies. Uh, by and that such would a, probably affect Sinn Féin or Fine Gael more? I mean, one would have thought that a farmer's independent would be more damaging for Fine Gael. Well, there's a kind of a Republican vote that has followed, uh, kind of a nationalist vote that has followed Sinn Féin. Uh, uh, there's, there's kind of rural and, and urban iterations of it, but a lot of that would migrate away from Sinn Féin uh, to, to a rural candidate. I, I, I think it would affect, I mean, the Venn diagram, there's always overlap between all of the parties, but in, in my estimation it would affect Sinn Féin uh, more than the other two parties. We're going to take a quick break, we'll be back after this. AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored exclusively for your business needs. Spanning offices, warehouses, industries, workshops, schools and public spaces. Specialising in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. Our offerings include versatile storage solutions and comprehensive office project design and implementation. With over 45 years of experience, we stand as your trusted partner in smart B2B solutions. To explore all we have to offer, visit ajproducts.ie and elevate your business with AJ Products. And you're very welcome back. Theresa Harry was just talking before the break there about the potential opportunities for an independent candidate from a rural, uh, independent farming background, perhaps expressing scepticism about policy on, 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 on refugees. There are a number of independents um, currently in the European Parliament. Three of the current 14 are independents. There's one in, one in each constituency. Uh, at least two of them, I think, would be broadly categorised as being on the left or even the hard left. I'm not quite sure where Luke Ming Flanagan, who's in Midlands Northwest, stands. Um, the other two are Claire Daly in Dublin and Mick Wallace in in South. Would they be in the the sites for Sinn Féin? That, that, that's a kind of a left-wing vote in, in those constituencies? I mean, I think all three of them would potentially be in, in the sites for, for Sinn Féin. And, and if we look back to 2019 and we look at um, who displaced uh, the, Sinn Féin, uh, the Sinn Féin MEPs, it, it's more likely it was 
for example, um, in, in Dublin, Claire Daly and uh, Lynn Boylan would certainly um, have been campaigning in the same left wing, uh, very significantly left wing feminist um, um, and pool of voters. And on that occasion, it was Claire Daly that emerged. I, I think um, there there's going to be very interesting campaign dynamics and, and the outcome will be particularly interesting to see in relation to the particularly Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, who have received a lot of attention over the course of the, the term of this parliament in term of the stances that they have taken, particularly in relation to the uh, Russian invasion of, of Ukraine uh, and there's been some critical uh, discussion of them and the positions that they have taken. Now whether that's going to resonate uh, with voters and whether it's going to impact on voters remains to be seen but they're certainly a more um, you know once somebody has served a term there's always more that you can be evaluated on and I think that's definitely going to be the case for both Wallace and, uh, and Claire Daly this time around so there's de- definitely a degree of vulnerability there in terms of their seats. So if Sinn Féin is going to be targeting anybody, I would have thought they would be uh, prime candidates. I think Lukeman Flanagan is a, is a more interesting uh, candidate. I mean, we were just speaking about, um, Harry was just speaking about kind of prominent independent candidates that have um, come with rural roots. And, and to a great extent, Lukeman Flanagan um, sits in that, uh, in that space. And even just this week, he was uh, one of the MEPs that voted against the nature restoration law. He's raised a lot of concerns uh, for particularly for farmers and more generally the potential impact on rural areas. So I think he's nurturing uh, that particular line of argumentation and, and he's a, you know, a, v- a very effective campaigner. So I think he's already in that space. So for another independent to come out, they would really be having to displace somebody who is an incumbent and already quite, uh, quite strong in that area. And might the way they do that be, as Harry suggested earlier there, might be by tapping into that that discontent about accommodation of um, of asylum seekers around the country? Might that be the opening that would allow a, a different sort of independent to, to get through? I mean, that that is potentially the case. The only, I suppose, kind of caution you'd put in there is, is where we started this conversation in relation to the kind of candidate you have to be to be successful at European Parliament elections. You know, this is a presidential style campaign. You need to be very well organised. You already need to have connections. You need to be able to campaign and engage with voters um, across multitudes of, of counties. So it will be, it's difficult to see a, a single independent coming out that would be able to build that kind of infrastructure and network and campaigning base. I think it's quite likely that we will see some of that happening in the local elections where you need a much smaller number of votes to get elected and, and where the kind of the threshold is is that bit more, more manageable. Unless there is a um, an existing, for example, independent TD that might be willing to go into that, uh, that space, it, it's very hard to kind of come from being a relatively unknown figure uh, to actually campaigning successfully and effectively at the European Parliament election. So it would be a very big challenge. Now, there are some uh, TDs that have well, they certainly haven't ruled themselves out in terms of contesting the, the European Parliament uh, elections, but they are not people who have advocated, very, you know, very strongly on the, the immigration front. It's, it's more in relation to farming. And, and as we know, because there's farming protests all across Europe at the moment, the nature restoration law is is, is really very controversial. It's, it's passed, but but we are expecting more um, protest in relation to that. There There is a kind of a rural farming vote um, that, that could be activated, but I think you would probably already need to be reasonably well known well rooted in those communities and and you know capable of taking the step to a national level effectively 
It's also a sort of an anti-green vote, isn't it, Harry? That's the way it's sort of characterised sometimes, protest against the climate action policies. Yeah, um, the nature restoration the laws that were passed in the European Parliament would be a very good example of that. And you can see that those who represent r- rural Ireland and would consider themselves to be kind of, you know, uh, Michael Fitzmaurice, for example, was quite strong on that when he made me- media appearances yesterday. And there is, they, they, they do uh, attract a lot of support uh, from rural voters who are who are... Uh, uh, suspicious of what Europe is doing in relation to the environment and relation to imposing uh, climate change laws. And we saw it during the week uh, where, where, where there was a protest in Cork Airport where they were saying that farmers are being, well, in their perspective, farmers are being punished uh, and forced to uh, try to meet impossible targets. And, and that reflects protests emissions. that are taking place right across Europe uh, at the moment and will feed the, into overall the, European the, politics. The aviation industry seems to be getting, you know, uh, a free uh, pass. And there's tension there. And that tension will, will be taken up and be reflected in, by, by, by quite a few candidates, especially in the two rural constituencies. So, I mean, I may be looking for more coherence here than exists in contemporary Irish politics, mm. Theresa, but I can see that there's a shape of an ideal candidate here who would be opposed to current green policies being pursued by the government at the moment, who would be seeking to defend farmers, uh, who would say the, that rural Ireland is getting a bad deal from, um, from Dublin, and who also expresses at least disquiet or maybe something stronger on the, on the refugee issue. That, w- that, that would be quite a potent package. I mean, it is a kind of a Peter Casey shape package? Yes, and that was going to be my last point that I'd add in there. Ideally, they'd have a national profile from having been on some kind of a television or radio programme over the last couple of years, so they'd already be an identifiable or recognisable name. And everything you said is, is accurate, but that last point is, is really crucial in terms of being able to, to campaign, because that person we can't put a name on them right now and and we are only two and a half months out from the election. So if they're going to come forward, they really need to be appearing quite uh, quite soon and they need to be, um, you know, really advocating and, and putting their campaign in, in the spotlight. It's actually quite easy to get on the ballot for the European Parliament elections. You know, you, you just need, I think it's about 60 voters to uh, sign your nomination forms or there's a deposit which is less than 2,000 uh, euros or you can be nominated by a political party. So access to the ballot is not a barrier. I think access and, and capacity to campaign is really where the uh, constraints will be for the candidates. And it's expensive to run a campaign on that level. Um, but there's certainly a group of voters out there that are not currently being represented in terms of their views. And we know that particularly from work one of my colleagues at UL has done, Rory Costello, that there is a a cohort of voters that might be anything up to 20% of of voters um, that are not being represented by the political parties out there. And just like what you described, Hugh, uh, they have very strong views on on emigrants. They're quite hostile to uh, minority groups as a general rule. Uh, they oppose the kind of liberal direction of social policy. Um, a lot of them are in rural areas, but but not all. Um, they certainly have. Um, uh, views on climate change, uh, very strong views on, on climate change and kind of reject a lot of climate science. So there is a space there and there are definitely voters uh, voters there. But it is also a complicated space and, and one that none of the kind of major parties at the moment want to go into uh, because it becomes very difficult to govern once you you, you move into that uh, space. And for all three of the parties, um, the, the if you go into that space, you could run the risk, of course, of losing core support from your your uh, existing voters who might have more liberal and, and progressive views. 
Absolutely. Speaking of the Greens, I mean, the Greens had a good election the last time out. The, the Green was it the Green Wave or the Green Tide? I can't remember. In twenty nineteen, was uh, was was flagged in both the the local elections and the the European elections. They 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 won two seats. What are their chances of holding them, Harry? Um, I was just thinking of that. I think they so the Greens have done well, even when the party has had just like one or two percent of national support. If you go back to the nineteen nineties, uh, the Greens had two MEPs at the time, uh, Nuala Hearn and Patricia McKenna at a time when the party had no re- well had one or two representatives in national parliament. So they have done disproportionately well in European elections over uh, the past. But uh, like um, little, the, the, the uh, nursery rhyme, when they're good, they're very, very good. When they're bad, uh, it just goes horridly uh, for them. They either have a feast or a famine. Kieran Cuff um, topped the poll in 2019 and uh, will not in top in Dublin, but will not top the poll this time. But I think we'll probably have enough because the, the party is strongest in Dublin and it seems to be doing relatively well in the polls. There is about 10% or thereabouts yeah, in our most recent poll in Dublin. Yeah, yeah. but with mm. transfers and stuff, that, that would be sufficient, I think, for, for him to retain his seat. And there's always a a percentage of the population who will vote on, on the environment and that it's it's a growing percentage of the population, slowly growing, uh, but uh, enough. Particularly in urban areas. Yeah, in urban areas. So I think he'll do well. I think Grace O'Sullivan will have more of a struggle in the uh, South constituency. Uh, she did well to get elected the last time. She has high profile. She's an incumbent. Uh, she she was on radio uh, uh, yesterday. I was listening to her on the radio yesterday. So people know her. She has that name recognition. Uh, but uh, again, you know, uh, it's a predominantly rural constituency and it would be harder for her to hold on, uh, especially uh, with a resurgent uh, Sinn Féin. So uh, I think they will retain one uh, but we'll have difficulty in retaining the second. Saoirse McHugh was its candidate in uh, Midlands Northwest. O- almost got there. And almost you? got there. Mm. Uh, P- uh, Pauline O'Reilly is the candidate this time, who's a very good candidate with a very good profile. But I, I think it might be asking too much of her to win a seat in Midlands Northwest. There, there are a number, obviously, of, of other smaller parties floating floating around, Theresa, who may or may not be in contention for the final seat in, in some of the constituencies, but, but will definitely have some impact in terms of their transfers. There's Labour, there's the Social Democrats, there's Reed Smith from um, People for yeah. Profit. You know, each of them has the capability of picking up 6 7%, maybe more of the vote if their candidacy takes off. So are, they, are any of them in a shout with any of the elect- constituencies? I'm not sure that any of them are really in with a shout because I think this is going to be a, a big contest of the, the kind of heavy hitters. Um, you know, Sinn Féin are really seeking to reassert themselves in, in, these, uh, in these elections and you have very strong independence. So displacing any of that dynamic, I think, is going to be difficult. But I think um, some of the, uh, the candidates do have the potential perhaps to, um, if there is a kind of a soft left transfer pact uh, to support the Green Party, uh, the, the Green Party. There, there's not a lot of love lost between them in public debates, but their voters are very similar. I mean, if you look at the profile of a Labour Party voter, a Social Democrat voter and a Green Party voter, you wouldn't be able to insert a sheet of paper between them. So potentially um, the incumbent Greens might be advantaged. I mean, there's some quite high profile. I mean, Aidan O'Reardon is is on the uh, the list for uh, the, the, the Labour Party. Um, and so, that's, you know, some of them are likely to attract a sizable vote in and of yeah, themselves. Democrats as well, yeah. Theresa. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and But I suspect that in the end, they will more store up the dynamic uh, uh, in, in the transfers rather than really disrupting the, the apple tart. 
we should move maybe to the, question, the, 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 the existential question of, of, of what's the point of all this? I mean, we've been discussing the horse race here and the runners and riders and the options. And we mentioned earlier on that, you know, um, that, that some parties at least are more comfortable in thinking about this in terms of domestic issues, which may not actually be relevant to uh, the European Parliament should they, should they be elected there. But the European Parliament is, a, is an increasingly significant institution. And there is a lot of focus this time out because the sort of the party political architecture of the parliament which has been in place for quite a long time with a sort of a centre-right, centre-left coalition might be threatened by the rise particularly of the populist right but also on the, on, on the, on the populist left. None of that seems to feed into the kind of debates that we, we hear in Ireland but, but it does have an impact on how significant our MEPs actually are when they go to work in Brussels, doesn't it, Theresa? Yeah, it has a huge impact. I mean, the truth of the matter is that the European Parliament has been getting more and more powerful with each passing treaty. So every time we have a referendum inbuilt in there has been a rebalancing of the powers of the European Parliament. And so it has really important legislative and budgetary powers um, uh, these days. Um, And probably the community in Ireland that knows the most about that is the farmers, because they tend to actually be amongst the most informed people in terms of of European affairs. But the, the way the European Parliament itself works is it, it is also organised around a kind of a loose collection of, um, well, they call them groupings, but to us, they're effectively political parties. Now, some of those groupings are more important than, than others. And uh, for kind of a long period of time, the three biggest groupings and pre- three most influential groupings are effectively the European People's Party, which is where Fianna Gael sits in the European Parliament, um, the, the Social Democrats, so the kind of centre-left grouping. Um, and we don't have anybody in there at the moment, the Labour Party, used to be in there. And, and then the liberal grouping, which um, since the advent of President Macron in France um, has been relabeled Renew Europe Group. And this is where Fianna Fáil sits in the European Parliament. And there's always a tug of uh, war between these groups um, for pre- precedence and, and um, for dominance after each uh, set of European Parliament uh, elections. And the MEPs that sit in those groups uh, tend to have oversized impact on policy making uh, and on outcomes in the European Parliament because they tend to have more positions on committees and and committees are absolutely central to how the work of the European Parliament uh, does. So as a consequence, um, a lot of the MEPs that we send out that sit in those groups tend to have a major, uh, tend to have a major impact. Francis Fitzgerald, um, who's only been recently elected to the European Parliament, is one of the most significant MEPs out there, in part because, of course, she's a former in their language, Deputy Prime Minister. And she also sits in the European People's Party, which is the most significant group um, at the moment. But one of the problems we have is that we've been sending out people who sit in the fringe groups um, in the European uh, in the European Parliament. And, and most other European countries do not know what independents are. They don't have non-party candidates and they certainly don't have them, um, you know, at the, uh, at the European Parliament level. So often our independents tend to go into kind of smaller groupings uh, they tend to be much less uh, in influential. Uh, they don't get good positions on on committees, uh, and they tend to have much less impact on policy. And I think a lot of the time that that doesn't get discussed in in Ireland. The consequences of the the, the voting decisions that are made here and their impact on Ireland's capacity uh, to uh, shape policy uh, at, at the uh, European level. Because one of the really unusual things is if you take a kind of a look at who we've been sending to the European Parliament over the last couple of elections is is that the balance sometimes almost leans towards Euro criticism and even Euro scepticism 
in the in the the, the 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 last decade and a half. But Ireland is actually one of the most pro-EU member states in the European Union. For decades, the Eurobarometer evidence tells us that anywhere between kind of 80 and 95% of Irish people think that membership of the European Union is a good thing. But that's not a message you would get if you looked at the contributions of Irish MEPs in the European Parliament. And what role, Harry, does Sinn Féin then have to play in that? Because as, as mentioned earlier, you know, its, its roots and its traditions have been very strongly Eurosceptical, but it has been moving across the spectrum on those issues uh, over the last ten, 10 years or more. But what's its position on Europe, in Europe, in the Parliament? Yes, it, it, it has put its thumb up to, to, to feel the direction of the wind on one or two occasions. I'm not accusing the party of being over uh, populist, but it, it has changed uh, according to the will of, of the people. It started off as an openly Eurosceptic party, but it has evolved and changed over the years. I think Brexit was a key moment for the party because the UK uh, was leaving the European Union and that left Sinn Féin with a quandary. And I think its attitude towards Europe softened considerably after Brexit. It had been moving in that direction already, but I think Brexit was a kind of a big turning point for it. And I think it has been becoming less and less Eurosceptical. I think it described itself as Eurocautious occasionally uh, since then. It doesn't like a, a, an overly federalist Europe. It has huge difficulties with European defence policy, and that's a uh, one of the the big areas uh, where Sinn Féin and the other two parties would have conflict in terms of their policies, even though uh, it has softened its stance considerably in uh, recent years in relation to that. And McCarthy made a significant statement several months ago in relation to PESCO and in relation to, to European peacekeeping that would not have been made by Sinn Féin five or six years ago. I think in recent months, I, I think the, uh, the uh, Israeli um, attack on Gaza has coloured its attitude towards Europe and also a lot of ordinary people's attitude towards Europe. Ursula von der Leyen, who would have been seen as a big champion by Irish people for many years, I think the attitude and the disposition towards her in Ireland has changed markedly, not only amongst Sinn Féin supporters, but amongst the general population in relation to her unwavering support uh, for Israel. And that has thrown up question marks uh, about uh, her and her uh, 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 having a second term, both the Labour Party and Sinn Féin significantly, have said they oppose her having a second term while it looks like the two bigger parties of government, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, will back her candidacy, albeit uh, with uh, caveats. So Sinn Féin um, isn't exactly hugging uh, the European Union, uh, but it's not pushing the European Union away anymore. But it will always, um, you know, uh, treat uh, its relationship with the European Union with a degree of caution. And, and where does it stand? What, what is its grouping in, in the European Parliament at the moment, Theresa? It sits with a group that are called GUI. Um, G-U-E is their, uh, is their acronym. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a, left-wing, uh, a left-wing grouping and they've been there uh, for some time and, and GUI has become more significant. But I suppose in contrast to um, the European People's Party or Re- uh, Renew Europe, it doesn't have the vast majority of European prime ministers and European ministers. Um, so in terms of kind of connection into the other institutions of the European Union or also even its capacity to kind of shape policy in the European Parliament, it is less um, It is less significant. Is it possible though that that might change? Because as I said, the complexion of the Parliament could be quite different and, they, you know, it, 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 therefore the, the balance of power might change. 
And it's entirely possible that, and in fact, a lot of the discussion across Europe at the moment is that the uh, next parliament is going to be a very different parliament. But much of that debate and discussion actually is focused on how there will be a shift more to the far right um, and that we would see uh, certainly, um, you know, a much larger group of MEPs returned that would... um, affiliate with the, there are two far right groupings at the moment uh, and whether they might go into either of those. But there's also a discussion about whether the European People's Party itself, which is the kind of traditional pro-European major bloc, whether that is also drifting to the right in, in the uh, in the parliament and to what extent kind of mainstream Christian democratic political parties or even Fine Gael kind of defies some categorization in that way. But, you know, it has sat happily within the EPP grouping, whether it will become a more difficult place for those kind of traditional older parties of, of the parliament. So, um, you know, the, the, in that sense, I, I don't think the dynamic is going to hugely alter Sinn Féin's positioning. What will be interesting is that right now it doesn't look like Ireland is going to return MEPs that would be moving um, to the kind of far right of the of the spectrum. Right. So just to wrap it up, I suppose, Harry, that the fact is, we know about 80% of what's going to happen, but there is a real, because this is a second order election, and uh, there is always the possibility of a of a significant surprise. But but the clock is ticking from what Theresa is saying, three months to go. If there is to be a surprise, it's going to have to start, you know, you have to be rising on the horizon. You, aren't you? Yes, I want to know all the, numbers, all the numbers, all the numbers, all the 14 seats for everybody. Okay, please. well, in, in South, I think Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin will each win the seat, and then the last two seats... Uh, will be a uh, competition between second Sinn Féin candidate, second Fine Gael candidate, Mick Wallace, uh, Grace O'Sullivan, and perhaps a and other. Midlands Northwest, I think one seat will go to Sinn Féin, uh, Michelle Gildernew more likely, uh, Fianna Fáil, uh, Barry Cowan, uh, Fine Gael, uh, possibly Maria Walsh rather than, than Colin Markey, and Luke Flanagan, I think, will retain. So the fifth seat there will be between Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, probably less likely Fine Gael and perhaps uh, uh, an independent that emerges. Dublin, um, I think, uh, will be Sinn Féin and Fine Gael for sure. And the last two seats will be a competition between the Green Party, Fianna Fáil, I think Barry Andrews might be uh, vulnerable there, uh, Claire Daly and uh, perhaps uh, a another as well. And the one thing I'd Theresa? add in there is, and that we haven't mentioned it so far, and it just gets to that kind of thread of what we've been talking about is there are two incumbent MEPs that we think are in serious danger of losing their seats and, and they're people who weren't elected the last time and that's Chris McManus from Sinn Féin and Colin Markey from Fine Gael. They were co-opted to replace um, in the case of, of Sinn Féin. Matt Carthy of course took a seat in the Dáil and his replacement um, uh, took that and, and McManus is from Sligo but he has a very local base there and it'll be a real challenge for him to you know contest and, and hold that seat and the same thing uh, for Colin Markey. Um, he went into the European Parliament after um, Mairead McGuinness um, moved to the European Commission. And so he's an incumbent MEP and in and, and that sense he should have advantage. But it just tells you about the kind of the size of the constituencies and that need to have a major national profile. It's such a challenge even for, for the two incumbents who are sitting there. Because they're incumbents, but they really have no, I, I, I'm sure the vast, many of our listeners listening would never have heard of either of those two people. No, the only times where, in, where incumbents who were selected rather than elected have done well was when the party hierarchy tried to boot them out and then they mounted a rearguard uh, action to, uh, to, to and, and they actually got the, the grassroots behind them. So it happened with Bernie Malone, who was a Labour MEP in Dublin, and it happened with Sean O'Neachtan, who was a 
Fianna Fáil MEP in Connacht Ulster at the time. Uh, Frank Fahey was the preferred candidate and Sean O'Nochtan emerged as the candidate and he subsequently held on to a seat that he had been co-opted so on. So is that a strategy you're advising? Get their parties to boot them out so they can fight back? I think and be so. The I think that's the only way. Okay, that's, I think. Well, I think they need to manufacture a row of some kind mm. very soon okay, there's some, because it's a real challenge. Some wise political advice there from our sages to, the, to those particular candidates. we leave it there. Three months to go. Very interesting to see how it turns out. Theresa uh, and Harry, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon, our engineers JJ Vernon. We'll be back with you on Friday with the wrap. Until then, thanks very much for listening.